sermon has a uh, you know, kind of two uh, two possible titles. Uh, first title is going to be "Is Jesus Enough?" Or we could say, "Oh no, another beatitude sermon." Well, maybe we should stick with the first title, Is Jesus Enough? But uh, find Matthew chapter 5, let's read the first, uh, first 12 verses, uh, Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Uh, it says, And seeing the multitudes, uh, he, this being Jesus, went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst uh, after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye, when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now there's a uh, part of the Declaration of Independence that we're familiar with. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among those uh, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And most of us have heard those words uh, since we were in elementary school. And, and in a sense, they represent what it means to be an American. All right? But unfortunately, at the same time, they can be a dangerous uh, stumbling block for those who truly desire to walk in the footsteps of, of Jesus. Our culture has manipulated the idea of, of the right to, to pursue happiness into really an unbiblical quest uh, for things that make us feel good, for things that make us happy, and, and, and it's without regard for any moral underpinnings that, 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 that provide the proper foundation for the pursuit of happiness. You know, as Americans, we're, we're really excited about our rights. Um, and we ignore the responsibility that comes with those rights. So, so as, as believers, as followers of Christ, we have to ask ourselves, is Jesus enough? Now, this morning we're going to examine part of this Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to describe a whole new uh, way of life in which real, genuine blessing and joy and contentment come, but, but not from the pursuit of things of the world or, or trying to change our circumstances, but by entering in a, a, an intimate relationship with Jesus, the one who created us. He's going to describe a new, uh, new kind of kingdom in which things are, are turned upside down, or actually they're, they're turned right side up because they've been upside down. Where previous assumptions about uh, the nature of the kingdom are going to be challenged, they're going to be refuted, and, and in the process he's going to teach us how we are to live in this new kingdom that, that he's introducing here. 
Now, before we begin, let's, let's put this into context it is, is, as to where this fits in Jesus' ministry. He's very recently just been, been baptized, and, and at his baptism, the Father used words describing him as a suffering Savior, that, that, that he would be a king who would receive the nations as an inheritance. Uh, Matthew records uh, kind of the main message of that ministry. Uh, Matthew chapter 4 verse 17 where it says and from that time Jesus began to preach saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand so he announces the presence of the kingdom a new kingdom is coming and then he shows the power of that kingdom and he does that by by the way he he healed by the way he he cast out demons uh, by the way he called people into his kingdom and that, that must have been exciting news for the Jews because they were waiting for the Messiah. They hadn't heard from God for, for 400 and some years now. And now maybe this is the Messiah. He's going to usher in this new kingdom. And, and the expectation that the Messiah was going to overthrow that tyrannical Roman government, kick them out of, of, of their land, I mean, and, and establish this new government, they must have been excited to hear this. But early in Jesus' ministry, he makes it clear that the kingdom of heaven that is at hand is something very different than what they were expecting. So uh, we see in Matthew 1 and 2 here, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that, that, that he is he's going up into a mount. That was kind of the custom. He sits down and he begins to teach. So at the end of chapter 4, we learn that, that Jesus had become actually quite, uh, quite popular because he had been doing some healings. His, his teaching was very authoritative, something new. And as a result, the large, large crowds began to gather around him. And, and, and this is one of those occasions where people just wanted to hear what he had to say. And as he sat down to teach, his disciples gathered around him. And what that tells us is, is, is that the disciples were the primary audience for what they were about to hear. Now, we know that Jesus desired the crowds to hear as well, and we know that they did hear, uh, because in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, which is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we know that the crowd around the disciples heard. So, so really there's uh, two audiences here. The, the primary audience... Jesus' disciples, but the crowds also got to hear Jesus' words, his teachings. And as we'll see, uh, Jesus' words serve different purposes for the different audiences. Most of us recognize this section as the Beatitudes, and, and the words derived from the Latin meaning happy or, or fortunate or, or blissful. But, and really, this comes from the first word in the nine statements that begin with blessed are. But we, we need to understand what this word blessed means, or we're really going to mis, misinterpret this, uh, this, this section. A number of modern translations will translate this word uh, happy. So it's happy are you if this, and happy are you if that. But, but, but happy comes from the root word hap, which, which is where we get the word happenstance from. It really means that, that your happiness depends on your circumstances. Uh, but, but that's not really what this means. It's, it's, it's being, being blessed, though, is being blessed is not dependent on your circumstances. Being blessed doesn't depend on your emotions. 
being blessed doesn't doesn't depend on 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 how well or not well you think your life is going but the blessings depend rather upon the god of the universe and his grace acting in your life that's how you are blessed one commentary describes the idea of being blessed like this it's the uh, inner joy the the serenity the the composure which comes from knowing that you are right with God, that your contentment and well-being are not the product of chance, but are the product of infinite grace. Now that is blessed, all right? There are uh, some debates as to the meaning, the application of these things, but Again, because we are who we are, we want context to, to guide us. All right? In their proper context, we'll see that they have two purposes. One for each of our audiences, the disciples and the rest of the crowd. They're the unbelievers. So for the Christ follower, for the disciples, these are words of celebration. Right, because their decision to follow Jesus and submit their lives to him, it means that they're already blessed. Right? They're already blessed here, and, and they're going to have greater blessings later on. Now, for, for the unbelievers, for the crowds, for those who really haven't decided if they're going to follow Jesus, those who are really kind of eavesdropping on what Jesus is teaching his disciples, these are words of invitation. They're, uh, Jesus is inviting them to become the kind of people that can be blessed by these things, that their lives can be characterized by these blessings. Now, obviously, this section, it could be broken down into a number of sermons that focus on each individual saying, and there was a time in my ministry when I would have rattled these off, we would have had nine-week series on every one of these things. Uh, We might do that later on. I've done it before. But here's why I'm not going to do that. Just as we know that, that the fruit of the Spirit uh, you know, is, is, is one unit, right? It's nine, nine pieces of fruit, but they're all one unit. It's very easy to, to make this into a list of unrelated tasks that we can add to our uh, spiritual to-do list so that I can be more like Jesus. And one of the dangers of that, just like doing that with the fruit of the Spirit, is that we tend to, to pick and choose the ones that come easy for us. Uh, we, we take the individual elements out that we want to focus on, and then we kind of ignore the rest of them because they're too, too difficult. Like the fruit of the Spirit, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really good on the love part, but boy, that self-control, that's really not my thing, you know. No, no, we don't get to do that, and we don't get to do that with these either. That's not the kind of approach that Jesus has in mind for this. So as we examine this passage, it's really important to look at the, at the tense of the verbs, the subjects, the objects of the actions that are described. And, and, and when we do that, we'll learn, first of all, that the Beatitudes consist of, of, of future promises that are, that are bookended uh, by a present reality. See, verse 3 and verse 11, those, those are the bookends. Both of them end in the phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's present tense. Right now, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In these two verses, Jesus is describing something that is a present reality in the life of the disciples. Uh, They possess the kingdom of heaven right then and right there. 
And the same is true for us. Uh, there is a present aspect of his kingdom that we possess right now. And when Jesus came to earth the first time, died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, he made it possible for us to, to, to experience the blessings of being a part of his kingdom right here and right now. But in between verse 3 and verse 11, these, these, these bookends, we find the other blessings, and they're all in future tense means they shall. Something's going to happen later on. And there are aspects of the kingdom of heaven that will be experienced in full later. They'll be experienced in full in the future with Jesus. And I think that much of the confusion about this passage stems from the failure to recognize the contrast between what we have now and what we're promised uh, later on. Because you'll find people who commit their lives to Jesus and then they become disillusioned when they don't immediately experience things like comfort and mercy and, and satisfaction and, and the ability to see God clearly. Now certainly Jesus does provide these things in some measure right now, but none of us will experience them to the full extent that God has in store for us until we're in his presence. There's a second important conclusion that we draw from the structure here, and that is that the Beatitudes are both universal and they are personal. In verses 3 to 10, Jesus speaks in the third person. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They shall be comforted. They shall receive this. But, but you notice the change in verse 11 as Jesus shifts to the second person. It's blessed are you, and it speaks of your reward. Jesus begins by describing the general universal principles that apply to his kingdom as a whole. And he makes it clear that these blessings are available to anyone who is willing to humble themselves before God and, and, and commit their lives to him. But then he turns to his disciples and he drives home the point that this is about them personally, individually. He wants to make sure they understand that they are individually and corporately responsible for implementing these principles in their lives. See, it's far too easy to look at these instructions from Jesus and think about how good it would be if everyone else would follow these, right? We sit and listen to sermons and think, boy, I hope they get this. Boy, yeah, they really need to hear this, right? But Jesus is saying to each of us, blessed are you if you apply these principles in your life. So don't think about how everybody else needs to hear this. You think about how you need to hear this. But given what we've covered so far, the key to experiencing all of these blessings is found in verse 3. So look at verse 3 again, where it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It starts right here. Now, we need, to, we need to kind of find out what this poor in spirit is all about. What, what does this mean? The idea of being poor in spirit simply means this, that, that if I am poor in spirit, I recognize my true condition before God. The word translated here, poor, is, is the word that indicates someone who is completely destitute. They have nothing. So someone who is spiritually poor recognize that they are spiritually bankrupt in the eyes of God. And it is only when we come to that point in our lives where we recognize that we have absolutely nothing to offer God 
that it becomes possible for us to enter and serve in his kingdom. See, later in, in Jesus' ministry, he told a parable that illustrates this uh, perfectly. If you want to turn to Luke chapter 18, um, I'm going to read it for you, but Luke chapter 18, it's verses 9 to 14. Uh, it's, it's two men are involved in what is supposed to be worship here. Uh, and Luke 18 verse 9 says, And he spake this parable unto certain uh, which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Jesus said, verse 10, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, uh, which is kind of odd, uh, phraseology he's really not praying he's talking to himself here he's so he says god i thank thee that i am not as other men are extortioners unjust adulterers or even this publican i fast twice in the week i give tithes of all that i possess then the scene turns to the publican verse 13 and the publican standing afar off would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man, the publican, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. The self-righteous Pharisee was, was, was polar opposite of being poor in spirit. And because he did not recognize his spiritual poverty, he was quite far from entering the kingdom of heaven. The tax collector, on the other hand, he, he had a fairly accurate view. His, his, his self-assessment was right on, right on track. He, he knew what his life looked like when compared to the absolute holiness of God. And because he recognized his true condition before God, he was, he was ready to enter the kingdom of heaven. See, in a culture that, that values self-sufficiency, uh, values you know, self-made men, uh, values the radical individualism, it isn't really a popular message today. We're taught from a young age not to be weak, and if there's any areas of weakness in our life, we're encouraged, we're taught, uh, we're scared into hiding those areas of weakness from anybody else. And we're, we're, we're taught to hide and deny any area of vulnerability. That's why without a doubt for most people on most uh, job interviews or job questionnaires, the hardest question for them to fill out is what is your greatest weakness they they can't fathom they have any let alone write any down how could they admit that they have any weakness at all we find here that jesus's message is is counter-cultural it's it's counterintuitive his message contradicts the world's message because as we go through this, we'll see that, that, that the righteousness of Jesus' followers goes deeper than the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and we know Pharisees today. We know what they're like. They're the ones that, that intimidate us with, with the rigor with which they keep the law. And, and, of course, they're very vocal about letting all of us know who don't that we don't. And, and, and they're very loud about letting everybody know how good they are at it and how bad everybody else is. See, we know people like that. We know Pharisees. But this, 
This is Christian Living 101, right? How to live as a child of the kingdom. This is how to live as a son of the Heavenly Father. This is how to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It, it does not begin with, with what we are. It does not begin with, with you know, what we are to do, but it begins with, with the blessedness of what we already actually are. Being is the foundation of doing. That's the way it's supposed to work. He says, if you're in my kingdom, then this is what you are. You are blessed. It's not what you need to be. If you're following me, this is already you. Now, it's not easy to become or to remain poor in spirit, especially in our culture. So if we really desire to do that, then we need to be aware of at least two potential barriers to, to, uh, you know, that, that, that might prevent us from, from becoming or staying poor in spirit. The first one is self-sufficiency. That, I mean, if you think you have to be self-sufficient, uh, you're not going to be poor in spirit. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus preaches a message like this, and, and it's right after the account in Luke, uh, Jesus describes the blessings of the kingdom, but then he gives some words of warning. In Luke 6, 24 to 26, he says, But woe unto you that are rich, for ye shall receive your consolation. Woe unto you that are full, for ye shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for ye shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. See, Jesus is speaking here to those who have uh, been attempting to obtain the riches of the kingdom on their own effort or, or, or with their own energies. But for those who are pursuing riches, satisfaction and comfort and prestige here in life jesus makes it clear yeah you might get some of that temporarily you may be able to make some temporary gown there may be some temporary happiness some temporary fulfillment but doing that you will forfeit the long-term blessing that comes from being genuinely poor in spirit See, that's why the Beatitudes are not merely some guide to achieving a better life. I mean, they're not, as, as, as I'm sure you've, you've read, I've read eight steps to happiness, right? No, no, this is not some kind of life that, that we can achieve on our own just by trying harder. This, is, this, this life is only to be found in Jesus Christ as we have trusted him to save us and we allow him to transform us day by day into his image. It's a life that has to drive us to our knees where we lay our lives before him daily so he can continue to transform us. The Beatitudes describe life with the Father, but, but it describes a life by, by contrast, um, by antithesis, we could say. In this kingdom, Jesus says, you need to be emptied before you can be filled. See, that's what the gospel does. The gospel, first, it, 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 it empties you of all of you and then it, then it fills you with him. It, it, it deconstructs you, and then it reconstructs you. Right? It takes you apart, and then it puts you back together the right way. You have to lose yourself in order to find yourself. That's not how the world thinks. That's backwards compared to the world. 
But that's what it takes to be poor in spirit. Our second barrier here is the desire for comfort. The first is the desire for self-sufficiency. Now it's the desire for comfort. Most of us really like comfort, right? It's one of our favorite things. We tend to do all we can to preserve that comfort. And, and, and that desire for comfort has a tendency to influence every decision we make. But often in, in, in our desire to maintain that, that status quo, that comfort, we, we have to sacrifice righteousness in order to be comfortable. You know, most of us really get into these beatitudes at least at the beginning, right? Till we get to the last one. I mean, we, we want to be comforted. We, we want to be satisfied. We want to inherit the earth. We want to receive mercy. We want to see God. We want to be called the sons of God. But then when it gets to verse 10, boy, we want to put the brakes on, right? Look at what it says. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, we get to that one. It's like, well, let me think about this a little bit. See, here's where our desire for comfort kicks in. I don't know a lot of people who, who would want to suffer persecution because they choose to pursue righteousness. But Jesus warned his followers that that's exactly what they should, should expect. If you pursue righteousness, you will be persecuted. The world will turn on you because to pursue righteousness is to run counter to what the world's to what the world thinks, to what the world offers, to what the world has as a priority. T. Harv Eker wrote some interesting words that can be applied about the kingdom of heaven here. He says, nobody ever died of discomfort. Yet living in the name of comfort has killed more ideas, it has killed more opportunities, it has killed more actions and more growth than anything else combined. He says, comfort kills. When our desire for comfort gets in the way for our desire for Jesus, then we are no longer living for the kingdom of heaven. But for those who are willing to endure the persecution for the sake of their relationship with Jesus, he ends this section with a wonderful promise. He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. The Beatitudes reverse the priorities of the world. And by reversing the world's values, by reversing the world's priorities, it brings us into conflict with the world. By living for the kingdom, again, we, we counter the world. And if we're willing to sacrifice some temporary comfort right now, Jesus has some permanent rewards awaiting for us in the future. You know, we began the, the, the message with the words from the Declaration of Independence. Remember, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are, you know, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Now, I don't, don't, don't get me wrong. I praise God that I get to live in a country where, at least right now, we still have those rights. But let me ask you a question. If, if your rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness were taken away, if things turned 
Is Jesus enough for you? Being in the kingdom is belonging to Jesus Christ. And that includes belonging to his, to his suffering. So is, is it enough? Right? Is it enough to humble yourself before Jesus and admit that you're spiritually bankrupt so that you can enter the kingdom of God? Or are you still clinging to that desire to be self-sufficient and, 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 and settling for temporary happiness that will fade away as soon as your circumstances change? Is it enough to sacrifice comfort in order to pursue righteousness, knowing that the final, complete fulfillment of Jesus' promise awaits you in his presence, awaits you in heaven, awaits you in glory? Or are you still kind of caught up in pursuing the American dream, which really falsely promises comfort and happiness right now? When you look at these Beatitudes, these nine, ten descriptions here, they, what they really do, they, they describe Jesus. This is, this is Jesus here. This, this is his life. This is, this is his living. This is, this is what it means for, for, for us to be like Jesus and, and, and to live like Jesus. Is that enough? Is, is Jesus enough for you? That's the question. You will never be poor in spirit. You'll never be blessed You'll never enjoy serving in the kingdom of heaven if Jesus is not enough. You lose everything but your breath and your heartbeat. Is Jesus enough? Stand with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. Father, we thank you again for this time in your word, and we thank you, Lord, for the challenge of examining our priorities, examining where we find our blessing. And Lord, we know in our heads that that our blessings come from you. Um, We know this, but Lord, we may not actually believe it. We may not be putting it into practice in the way we live. And Lord, we are are thankful. We know that that we are created in your image, that the time of our existence is determined by you. The place of our birth is by your design. We are thankful that you have placed us in a country where, at, at least right now, we do not face persecution for pursuing righteousness. Lord, your word says that we will. In some form or fashion, those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And Father, while you never tell us to go looking for persecution, you do tell us to live godly in Christ Jesus. You do tell us to pursue righteousness. You do tell us to press in to Jesus. So please examine our hearts and convict us where we do not align with your word. Father, our Jesus was poor in spirit. He emptied himself, as Philippians said, became of uh, no, no reputation, took on a form of a man, emptied himself for us.
Father, by your power, help us to empty ourselves for our Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Mike, would you come ahead?